0: Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You uh, for uh, Your abundant care for all of us. Father, You've shown us Your great care for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. You've shown us Your great care in giving us Your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. And You've shown us great care through the pastors and teachers and leaders that You send our way, who disciple us, who imitate Your Son, and who show us the way. And Father, we thank You for Zane Hodges. We thank You for his great life and ministry. We pray, Lord, that we as a church can carry on some of the mantle that, that, that he upheld. Father, bless this time of study as we open up Your Word I know, Lord, that uh, that Zane would have no other way but that we would uh, dig into Your Word now and learn some great spiritual truths. I pray that You would lead us as we do that this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. That's right, Mark chapter 12. We're back in the Gospel of Mark just for at least one Sunday. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. You know, when a uh, when a witness takes the stand, and the prosecution begins cross begins examining examining the witness, uh, it can always seem, from the side of the jury, uh, that the first one to examine the witness really has the upper hand, right? You know, when you're, when you're sitting in the jury and you're watching the lawyer and, and, the, and the witness and they're interacting with each other, that first interaction uh, usually demonstrates in the mind of the jury, wow, there's a, there's a powerful case being made here. This lawyer is, is grilling this witness and he's, he's throwing uh, bullets left and right and the witness is, is trying to dodge the issue perhaps. And you as a juror might be convinced that upon the first examination of the witness, the prosecution's case is foolproof. And then comes the cross-examination. Then, the defense attorney stands up and walks on over to the witness and begins to ask, ask new questions, begins to consider new information, new evidence that balances out what the prosecution had tried to do all along. And so from the mind of a juror, the first one to examine the witness might seem right. But when the defense attorney comes along, and when that second person comes to cross-examine the witness, things are brought back into balance. And we begin to see that there's, there's a little bit more balance to this case than what we had previously thought. In Mark chapter 12, And actually, going back to Mark chapter 11, Jesus had been on trial. He hadn't been on trial in a courtroom, but He had been on trial in the temple precincts of Jerusalem. He had been on trial being examined by the Jewish religious leaders of His day. They were throwing question after question, dart after dart, his way. And it could have seemed to the eyes of those watching that, man, Jesus was getting grilled out there. He was looking a little bit defenseless, a little bit helpless. But in the course of time, in our story today, Jesus is now going to turn the tables. And despite four very difficult questions that He had been asked in the previous two chapters, Jesus now is going to turn the tables and He is now going to be asking the question of the scribes, of the religious leaders, and putting them on notice, putting them on trial. This is the scene that we enter into as we consider Mark chapter 12, verse 35. And I want to recall some of the four past questions that Jesus had been asked just to bring our minds back into where we are in this Gospel story. The religious leaders were questioning Jesus in four ways previously. First, they were asking, by what authority are You cleansing this temple, Jesus? Second, they were asking, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus? Third, They were asking, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? The Sadducees were questioning the resurrection and marriage, and they had all of this conglomerate of questions for Jesus there. And fourth, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Which is the greatest commandment? In each of these incidents, Jesus was on the spot. He was on trial. He was being examined. But sure enough, sure enough, Jesus' answer to these questions of the religious elite had at least validated the legitimacy of His role as Master Teacher in Jerusalem. Jesus had risen above every attempt to thwart Him or to corner Him. And in our text, Jesus turns the table. Now He begins to question the religious elite. Jesus' question in Mark 12.35 sets in motion two other brief vignettes that we'll look at today of Jesus' life that demonstrate what is lacking in the religious leaders and what is going to be lauded or praised in the person of a meager, poor widow. The title of my message today is The Lacking Scribes, The Lauded Widow. The Lacking Scribes and The Lauded Widow turn to verse 45 of mark chapter 12 verse 35 excuse me verse 35 of mark chapter 12 we're going to read the first of 3 brief vignettes it says this in mark 12:35 then jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple how is it that the scribes say that the christ is the son of david for david himself said by the holy spirit the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand Till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Now, before we dig into this brief vignette, I want to ask the question who are the scribes? Who are the scribes? And we took a look at this question way back in Mark chapter 2. And I brought up this slide actually a number of months ago, perhaps seven or eight months ago, and I wanted to bring it up again. Notice this. The priests, the Jewish priests, were the scholars and guardians of the law. But in the course of time, this was changed. There developed a class of scholars who, though not priests, devoted themselves assiduously or diligently to the law. These became known as the scribes, that is, the professional students of the law. By Jesus' day, the scribes and not the priests were now the zealous defenders of the law and hence were the true teachers of the people. The scribes formed a solid profession which held undisputed sway over the thought of the Jews. That was by Frank Hirsch of the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Very handy uh, and helpful um, biblical reference tool. The scribes were the professional defenders of the Mosaic Law, the professional defenders of the Mosaic Law. They were people who had answers. They would be much like uh, (laughs) a Zane Hodges of our day. Uh, They would be the kind of people you'd go to and you would absolutely expect them to have an answer to your theological question. They were the, the highest of pastors, the highest of teachers, the highest of spiritual leaders in Israel. And Jesus asked them a question. He had been grilled four times earlier in the previous two chapters. Now he asks them a question. He's speaking outside in the temple precincts in the in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus turns to the scribes and he says this first. He says, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Now, there's a question mark at the end of this uh, sentence, this first preliminary sentence. But there's, the question mark is meant to be very rhetorical. Jesus here is not disputing this fact. Jesus here is not disputing the fact that the Christ or the Messiah, we might insert Messiah, Christ is Messiah, that the Messiah is the Son of David. Christ, Jesus Christ would never have disputed that. And few, if any, Religious Jews would dispute that the coming Messiah would be the son of David, uh, based on 2 Samuel 7 and a host of other Old Testament passages. You see, the scribes believed that the Messiah, the Christ, would be David's son, which at the very least meant that the Messiah would be a direct descendant of King David. Now, beyond that fact, beyond the fact of lineage there remained much ambiguity about the nature of the Messiah and the role that He would fulfill in Israel. There was a a bit of what we might term Messiah confusion in Israel. And again, I want to bring up a slide that I, I combined from some previous studies but which is so very relevant to this study again. And so it's important to make mention of this. What we're about to see are six elements. We're going to see five and then the six a little bit later. Six elements of confusion that both the scribes and first century Jews had about who the coming Messiah would be. These are elements of confusion. Number one, they didn't know whether the Messiah was divine or simply divinely anointed. Some argued that the Messiah would be divine. Others argued, no, He would be human, but He would be commissioned by God. Secondly, They didn't know if it was one or two messiahs, believe it or not, according to John 1, 21 and 25. Uh, In fact, there were some strands of Judaism which indicated there might be three messiahs. A prophet, a priest, and a king. So there was confusion there. Number three, was he going to be a militaristic, conquering king or more of a spiritual teacher and leader? Again, different strands of Judaism here. Some thought one, some thought the other, some thought both. Four, was the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem or of unknown origin? And five, what do we do with the the suffering motif? How can the Messiah suffer according to Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9, 25 and 26? These were elements of confusion in Jesus' day uh, among the scribes and of course among the people because if the teachers were disputing this, then of course the people were disputing this. So Jesus' initial question, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David, is not up for dispute. But He goes on to say this. He goes on to say, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus here in verse 36 is quoting King David from the Psalms. In particular, Psalm 110, verse 1. And this uh, particular psalm, is uh, Jesus is attributing to David, and He's also saying something unique about this psalm. He's he's indicating that David said, spoke these words, wrote these words, by the Holy Spirit. That is, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Here again, we see clearly the doctrine of inspiration on the lips of even Jesus Himself. David wrote, said, spoke by the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple things we need to make mention of this this section here in verse 36 as Jesus is continuing the question. David said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Said to my Lord, lowercase, so capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now what's the significance of this uh, in, in the original languages? Well, in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, the, the, the text that Jesus is quoting from, the mention there of the capital L-O-R-D is in reference to Yahweh, to God the Father, to the one true God. Anytime you see in your New Testament text or your Old Testament text capital L O R D, you can substitute the Father, God, Yahweh. The lowercase, the capital L and then the lowercase O R D is the Greek word there, Adonai, and it can mean it can mean Lord in a divine sense. It can also mean teacher or rabbi or master or sir so we see here that David is remarking, the Lord God said to my Lord, someone else of, of perhaps divine origin, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. It's a peculiar statement by David. A very peculiar statement. One that uh, is a bit uh, enigmatic, a bit mysterious. You see this in Psalm 110 you think what 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 is David speaking of here. Well, let's let's hold on for that. Let's hold on to answer that just one moment. Third and finally Jesus comes to his final question. Third Jesus highlights the apparent apparent discrepancy between the scribes' view of Messiah as David's son versus David's view of Messiah as his lord. And in the final phrase here in verse 37, therefore Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord, how is he then his son? This question by Jesus at the end of verse 37 brings forth the sixth and final element of confusion about the Messiah that haunted the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The sixth and final element is this. Is the Messiah David's son or David's Lord? Based on Mark 12 and Psalm 110. Is the Messiah David's son or David's Lord? Now, you and I have the benefit of, uh, of time on our hands on this side of the cross of Christ, you and I can look back with great clarity and see that the answer to this question, this seemingly mysterious and enigmatic question. We know that the reason the Messiah could be both David's son and David's Lord is because He would be God incarnate. Both fully man and fully God. Both a physical descendant of David and also David's God. What may have been confusing to many in Jesus' day, you and I can see very clearly. But you see, in Jesus' day, the scribes' view and the people's view of Messiah was that He was David's son, He was David's son, He was David's son. Most of them were expecting Him, the Messiah, because of His physical descendants from David, to be in a manner of speaking, inferior, although the Messiah would would rise up and lead Israel, but that He would come in the the spirit and power of, of King David. But rarely did they emphasize the fact that the Messiah would be greater than or would be superior to David. Yet interestingly enough, David said that very thing. The Lord God said to my Lord, David says, my Lord, meaning the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David here in this passage, friends, is, is witnessing the revelation, the direct communication of God the Father to God the Son, of God the Father to Jesus Christ the Messiah. David is witnessing this communication, this revelation, and God the Father is speaking to my Lord, David says, Jesus Christ the Messiah, and he's saying, sit at my right hand, the place of greatest prominence, and sit there, be seated there with me until all of your enemies are made your footstool. Until all sin and death is put under your feet. King David is witnessing this glorious revelation. A glorious revelation that the scribes of Jesus' day could not or refuse to understand. Ben Witherington writes this, the scribe's notion of Messiah is far too mundane. He is a much greater figure than the original David. Not merely a chip off the old block. Indeed, he is a transcendent figure, exercising lordship over even David. That's very well said. Jesus has posed the question how is it that David, that the Messiah, is David's son and David's Lord? We see no answer to the question on the lips of the scribes in this, in this story, in this paracope. We see no answer to this question. Instead, we see Jesus drawing out the answer implicitly. The Gospel writer doesn't, in fact, tell us of the reaction of the scribes to Jesus' question. Instead, Mark simply mentions that the common people heard Jesus gladly. I'm kind of reminded of... Uh, just the idea that, you know, when the, underdog, when the underdog wins, the people rejoice. Anytime there's an upset. Anytime the, 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 the Cinderella story happens and, and, the, and the seemingly underdog team beats the favorite, the people rejoice. I think that's the scenario here. Jesus, one man, one simple man, is coming up against throngs of scribes, throngs of theological elites, throngs of of, of scholarly professionals, men with great answers, men who always have the answers. And the crowd's watching. Watching the dialogue. Watching the interaction. They see one man against dozens. And they see that one man confound them with a few simple statements. They see that one man confound them with one reference to the Old Testament. The common people heard Jesus gladly. As I said, implicit in this story is the inability of the scribes to answer Jesus' question. As one theologian put it, their silence is ominous. Not only had the experts, expert scribes failed to answer Jesus' Jesus's question, but Jesus now goes on to point out other deficiencies in their spiritual leadership of Israel. Take a look at the next vignette. Verse 38-40. to 40. Then Jesus said to them in His teaching, Beware of the scribes, the people I'm just speaking with, who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. If you want to read a more extensive treatment of Jesus' words here to the scribes, you can actually read uh, Matthew 23, almost an entire chapter, which is along this same time frame with Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders of His day. It's a, it's a powerful chapter, Matthew 23. But Jesus, but Mark here really, really uh, makes, makes this uh, story brief. He makes it succinct. And he mentions that Jesus offers six rebukes of the scribes in addition to their inability to give Israel clear teaching about the coming Messiah. First, he says, they wear long robes. They walk around in long robes. What did that mean? It meant that they had decorative priestly garments that they liked to wear. According to Numbers 15, the the teachers of Israel would, would have long tassels on the end of their robes. And the tassels, though in Numbers 15 were meant to signify their their holiness among the nations. In Jesus' day, those tassels on the end of their robes represented their religious prominence. The aura of pride that exuded from them as they strolled the streets of Jerusalem. They loved the long robes. They loved greetings in the marketplaces. They enjoyed being called rabbi, teacher. They enjoyed the best seats in the synagogues. They enjoyed the best places at feasts. They loved the the social prominence. Fifth, they devoured widows' houses. We'll get to that in a moment. And sixth, they made a pretense. Verse 40, And for a pretense, make long prayers. Five of these six criticisms, one through four and number six, Leveled by Jesus, concerned how the scribes acted in uh, society with respect to social grandstanding. And Jesus derided their social grandstanding. But what about number five here? The devouring of widows' houses. What did that mean? It's difficult to know precisely what was meant by this comment, although although scholars really are, are narrowing down pretty closely what I think was going on in that day and age. Widows, by their very nature, had uh, of course lost their spouse, lost their husband. Um, if they were relying on religious leaders for counsel, support, and help with their estate or their possessions, that pretty much presu- that pretty much Rules out the idea that their children were taking care of them. So the widows that Jesus is speaking of are widows who, who lost not, but not only their husband, but either had lost their children or had children who were not caring for them, which was contrary to the Old Testament law. So, everybody, take care of your parents. Um, so these widows were on their own, most likely, uh, and they would come to the professionals. They would come to the experts. They would come to the people they trusted most. Much like we might come to a pastor or a church leader uh, and they would ask them, what should I do? What should I do with my, with my possessions, with my home, with my belongings? How can I prepare for the future and, and perhaps you know, for retirement? Do I have enough to, to, to spread it out through the rest of my life? And these scribes would be in position to give counsel to these helpless and vulnerable widows. And Jesus said they devoured widows' houses. I take that to mean they manipulated and defrauded the widows who came to them seeking financial and physical counsel for their their future sustenance. They devoured them. They took from them. They abused them. Jesus shows great disdain for their fraudulent dealings with widows. Israel's most helpless group. And Jesus says that the scribes who, acted in, the scribes who act in these manners, notice at the end of the passage here, will receive greater condemnation. That's a, that's a powerful statement there. I want to make mention of the fact that the Bible speaks of stricter judgment being rendered to those who either become teachers or who are entrusted with a greater measure of God's revelation. I I encourage you to visit those passages to see for yourself the, the truth of that matter. Jesus' words here are in keeping with the rest of Scripture. Teachers, leaders, those who have been entrusted with a good measure of God's revelation, you are held... To a higher standard, and Jesus says very clearly, those who treat, those who act in these manners, these six manners He's mentioned, and particularly the fifth, the, the devouring of widows' houses, those kinds of people will receive strict judgment. Whether it be before Christ, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ, or whether it be, uh, whether it be before Christ at the Bema seat judgment for Christians who perhaps acted unwisely, or whether it be for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. Greater, stricter judgment. Until now, Jesus has been largely criticizing what is lacking in the so-called religious leaders of Israel. And now we turn to our final vignette, verse 41-44. to Now Jesus will go on to tell us Not who is lacking, but who is worthy of imitation. Notice verse 41-44. to Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came, threw in two mites, which made a quadrants. So He called His disciples to Himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury." For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. The dialogue with the scribes is over. Jesus has now recused Himself to another section of the temple in the exterior temple precincts. He's recused Himself with His disciples and they're perhaps sitting... on some of the steps, some of the pillars that are near, and they're watching. They're just watching the scene. People watching. You ever people watch? It's pretty funny sometimes, isn't it? They're just people watching. They're just surveying the scene. What's going on? And they're watching people. This is the time of the Passover. It's a religious holiday season, and people are coming with free will offerings to the temple. They're coming from near and far. And outside in the the exterior temple precincts, there were uh, 13 receptacles, trumpet-shaped receptacles, uh, most likely made of bronze, that almost like a, a garbage bin of sorts, that people would come with their large sacks, their large donations of gold and silver coins, and they would lift them up and dump them into the receptacle, the treasury receptacle, and down it would go into a locked box that would be taken to the temple treasury. Perhaps it would go down a chute, actually, uh, into, the, into the depths of the temple where the treasury. And Jesus and His disciples are watching these, these donors, these charitable givers, come and dump their, their offerings into the receptacle. And He's taking note of the fact that some are entering the temple courts with very hefty sacks. Hefty stacks of gold and silver, coins which clank loudly when they're being poured into one of the many bronze receptacles. It's kind of like uh, these these people were uh, looking for a little bit of attention. Kind of like when you go to the gym and you you see that one person who's, uh, you know, pumping that little extra bit of iron. You know, they're, they're picking up the weights. Oh, boy, it's heavy. You know, they're putting it on. They're picking up the other weight. Oh, man, this is good stuff. Pumping the iron. It's not like me. I'm trying to simulate it. And they're pushing it up. You know, oh, look at me. I'm huge. You know those people at the gym? They want to, they want to be noticed for their strength. They want to be noticed for their, their muscular build, their ability to lift. I think of you know guys like James Reese and John Cole, these big guys here. These people are pouring coins in. Jesus is surveying the scene with His disciples. Look at these donations. And then a widow comes. Don't know her age. Don't know her particularly her life situation so much. She doesn't have a sack. She's got a hand. And in her hand is, is two mites. Two small mites. And... The two mites are copper coins. They don't clank like the gold and silver coins. Together they make a quadrants, which was a Roman, another Roman coin. And a quadrants was less than one one hundredth of a day's wage. A quadrants is what you would get if you'd worked 10 minutes that day. 10 minutes. And she comes with her her two mites, her quadrants. She drops it in the receptacle. Down it goes into the treasury. Jesus looks at this act and He points from afar. And He points it out to His disciples. He says, see that widow over there? He says, that widow, she just put in all that she had. Her whole livelihood. Coming so closely off the story of the Messiah being David's Lord, the Messiah being divine, exercising lordship over King David, we shouldn't be surprised about Jesus' omniscience here. Jesus wasn't told that she had put in her whole livelihood. He knew it by looking at her. He had command of human events, command of, of knowledge that had not been given him. And he points, it, he points out the widow to his disciples and says, There is one, there is one who is worthy of great imitation. He says, This widow, verse 43, put in more than all those who have given today in the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Jesus refuses to admire the the rich man, the lavish, charitable donor. Instead, He reserves praise for great, yet quiet, personal sacrifice to God. And this widow of tiny stature is, is a praiseworthy example in this story of Jesus But she need not be the only prototype. She need not be the only example. The same praise would be offered by Jesus to a rich person or to someone of middle class status. But the criterion, note this well, the criterion for Jesus' praise is not the size of one's sacrifice, but the degree to which one is, in fact, sacrificing. Jesus wasn't chiding the, riches, the, the, the donation of the rich, but He wasn't praising it either. And it was because their donation was not, in fact, sacrificial. It was pennies to them. Their great donation meant nothing. didn't hurt a bit. And the criterion for Jesus' praise is not the size of the sacrifice, but the degree to which the person is, in fact, Sacrificing. Now, I want to ask an obvious question, and, and it may seem very peculiar, but Jesus praises, okay? Jesus praises the widow's great sacrifice. Do we? I say, well, what do you mean? Of course we do. Of course we honor it. We think, it's, we think it's great. It's a story in the Bible, it's worthy of imitation. Jesus commends her. Why shouldn't we? I must admit, and I think if you, upon closer inspection of this text, I think you would agree with me, that at, there, there is something in me that hesitates to celebrate her actions on some levels. There is something in me that hesitates to celebrate the widow's actions on some levels. I ask this question. Is it really wise to give all one's livelihood? Is that wise? The text suggests the woman gave everything. We know she was exceedingly poor. It's likely her family was not taking care of her. Otherwise, if they were taking care of her, Jesus probably would not have labeled her donation as sacrificial. She was coming home to a warm meal, an abundant provision from her family. How would that have been a sacrificial gift? I ask the question, aren't we supposed to exercise financial discretion by providing for our own needs and saving money for the future? I ask the question, doesn't her decision greatly compromise her physical well-being? And if it does, is she then admirable or is she reckless? What would now become of this woman? What did she think would happen to her? I really really think this this question, Jesus praises the widow's great sacrifice, do we? I really think this question upon closer inspection is something that we really uh, don't recognize the the vast ramifications of. As we come to some conclusion here, I want to ask the question, should we imitate the widow's action in Mark 12? Should we imitate the widow's action in Mark 12? On the one hand, I want to say this. It's near impossible to argue no. Why else is Jesus praising her unless we are to follow in her footsteps? How can we say no? Don't follow the woman's example. Jesus is praising her. He's pointing her out to the disciples. He's saying, look at that. Look at that great sacrifice. That is worthy of praise. It's near impossible to argue that we should not imitate her. But yet on the other hand, it's complicated to argue, yes, what implications would such a decision have on our life, on our family's life? These are some questions I want you to wrestle with a bit at home this week. I'd like you to compare 1 Timothy 5, 3-10 with Luke 2, 36 and 37. I'd like you to wrestle with that at home a bit. Particularly paying attention to verses 5 and 37. Don't do that now. Don't, uh, hold the tendency. Go home. Take a look at these two passages. Consider their implica- the implications of them with respect to this question. But I want to say this. Should we imitate the widow's action in Mark 12 Keep in mind this. This woman had lost her husband. She had probably, she was probably not being cared for by her children. She was without obligation to anyone but God. In this context of life, she made the decision to forego physical security for the sake of making great spiritual sacrifice. And in answering the question, should we imitate the widow's actions in Mark 12, our answer to this question is dependent... Upon our earthly commitments and responsibilities to our spouse, to our children, etc. If we have existing earthly obligations, then biblical texts other than this one, I would argue, should take precedence over a literal imitation of the widow's actions. I give you one. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone... Does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Particularly given to men, no doubt. However, the principle here is clear and one that can also be uh, be, be found in First Corinthians seven, where the the, the wife's her, her, her duties, if she is if she has obligations to a husband, is to care for her husband, is to love him, is to is to care for him. She cares for the things of her husband. First Corinthians seven mentions. And so, if there are obligations, earthly commitments, earthly vows, and good vows, vows that God has blessed, God blesses marriage, He blesses parenthood, if those obligations exist, it seems to me that they take precedence over a literal imitation of the woman's actions. But if we find ourselves free of earthly obligations, we also are free to fully imitate the widow's actions. I emphasize we are free to imitate her actions. Certainly not compelled to do so. The Apostle Paul was single, free of familial responsibilities, and yet gave himself fully to the work of the ministry. He labored as a tent maker. He, he, he made money so as not to require mon- monetary help from the churches to whom he ministered. I would suppose that most of us have earthly obligations. And so for the vast majority of you, what can you learn from the story of the widow's mites? Jesus praises great sacrifice. Are you sacrificing? That is what we can learn. Those of us with earthly obligations, spouse, children, other. Jesus praises great yet quiet sacrifice. That's what we can learn from the widow's might. What about those of you who have no such obligations? I can't argue. I cannot argue uh, with at least permitting a literal, uh, a literal imitation of the widow's actions. I can't argue with that. And I, I, I venture to say no one can. Why else is Jesus praising her? I do suspect... And if you read 1 Timothy 5, and if you read Luke 2, you'll find this. I do suspect that this permission was particularly, let me say this, particularly offered to widows who had no earthly obligations. In Luke 2, you find Anna the prophetess. No job. Instead, she prayed and fasted day and night in the temple precincts. In 1 Timothy 5, you see widows. And Paul says, if they're praying and fasting, if they're, if they're giving themselves to the work of the Lord, let the church take care of them. Let them sacrifice themselves utterly. And so I have a suspicion that Jesus' commendation of this widow pertains particularly to widows who give of themselves completely to the work of the ministry. And that Jesus expects the religious community to respond to such a widow with great care, to not devour their house, but to provide for their needs. I suspect that's where Jesus is going. But I encourage your feedback on this. I think this is open for some discussion here. Application. What can we learn from this as we walk away today? What, what principles can we take from this? Let's not forget about the scribes. The duty of the scribes was to teach Israel the law of God. They opted instead to glory in their esteemed social status. Teachers and leaders in this congregation today, do you relish your title or authority? Is your ministry motivated by perks and opportunism? Consider 2 Timothy 2.15, a workman who rightly divides the word of truth, who stands before God and who is not ashamed. Don't let our ministry, don't let our efforts be motivated by perks and opportunism. Don't let us, don't, don't let your title or your authority or your degree or, or whatever, whatever you have behind or before your name, don't let that dictate who you are. Um, I mentioned in the tribute to Zane, Dr. Daniel Wallace said this of Zane Hodges. Dr. Daniel Wallace commenting on Zane's life, Zane never earned a doctorate and intentionally so. He thought that such a degree might make him proud. I, uh, I, believe, I believe that wholeheartedly. Uh, from what I know of Zane, that, that fits him to a T. He was asked by Dallas to go get a doctorate. and He says, number one, I, I don't need it. Because <laughs> he didn't. Number two, it would only puff me up, he said. He knew his limitations. Not, not at all to say people who get a doctorate are puffed up. But he knew his limitations. And he knew that if he sought that degree, that title, that, that, that prominence, that it would puff him up. Secondly, Jewish widows sought counsel for their estates only to be defrauded by the religious leaders they trusted. Do we take advantage of or protect the vulnerable? Third, Jesus refuses to admire the theological elitist or the socially prominent person or the well-networked individual, or the lavish charitable donor. Instead, he reserves praise for great yet quiet sacrifice to God. And that brings me to fourth and finally. Am I, are we, sacrificing for God's purposes? Where can I further use my time and resources for God's glory? Are you sacrificing? Are you sacrificing with your... with your finances. Maybe you are. Are you sacrificing with your time? Are you serving? Are you giving of yourself to the work of the Lord? I, I know of great opportunities for you. I encourage you. Follow the example of the widow. Offer great yet quiet personal sacrifice to God. That is what is worthy of praise. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, the Lord, We look at the the scribes today and we see what is lacking in them. And we look at the widow and we see what is praiseworthy in her. Father, help us to imitate the widow's actions. Help us to show ourselves worthy of great personal sacrifice. Father, may may we lay aside uh, the things of this world that matter little. And may we emphasize, may we focus on gi- giving our time, our resources, our skills, our energy to the work of the ministry. For we know, Father, that that is praiseworthy in Your sight. Father, um, once again, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its instruction to us. We pray that we can imitate the widow's actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.